Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Linda Buckmaster, author of the book Spaceheart, a memoir in stages. In those days, it was still quite thrilling for everyone, people who worked out there and tourists, and especially in Cocoa Beach, all the bars gave free drinks if you were there when a launch went off. We'll discuss Bishop Vero, the first Catholic bishop in Florida. Vero comes to Florida and begins this evangelical work, if you will, throughout the territory. He rebuilds the church in St. Augustine, works to build uh, churches in Tallahassee, uh, as far south as Key West. And we'll talk about the Veterans Legacy Program in St. Augustine. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Linda Buckmaster is author of the book Space Heart, a memoir in stages published by Borough Press. Buckmaster's father was a rocket engineer in the early days of the space program, and she grew up in Brevard County in the 1950s and 60s. After Sputnik in 57, of course, everything really blossomed here. In 58, we moved here right at the beginning, and we spent our early months uh, in a motel in Cocoa Beach while we were waiting for our house to be built in Satellite Beach. Just South Patrick Shores is where I, where we were. And you know, I think I was thinking about this because I saw you wanted to talk about my father as a space engineer, but I think in those days, one didn't know a whole lot what one's father did. You know, they went to work and then they came home. And so we just knew he was a rocket engineer. And of course there was a line there in terms of secrecy. What I've pieced together is that he was in guidance and that he actually wrote um, flight plans for uh, some of the Mercury program, the Redstones, the downrange flight plans. So that's what I've come to know sort of talking to this, that, and the other person and piecing things together as I've read about it too. One time, I, and I mentioned this in the book, that um, you know, I asked him what he did all, Daddy, what did you do all day at work? And he said, draw pictures. So I kind of figured out that later that that was about drafting, drafting that kind of thing. And he did have that draftsman lettering that he wrote everything in. Motivated by their mission to launch a man successfully to the moon and return him safely to the Earth before the 1960s ended, workers in the early days of the space program often worked very long hours and were sometimes sequestered for days at a time. Such dedication to their work often strained family relationships. 
Buckmaster believes that in her case, her father's schedule exacerbated existing problems in her family. Well, I think ours was probably strained before that. I was eight when we moved here. Of course, I didn't know a lot of that. Um, and I remember at one point, we all sort of bragged that uh, Brevard County had the highest divorce rate and alcoholism rate in the country. Now, where did we ever get that? I don't know. But I think that was definitely the case. And in later years, my mother said about my father that she thought the situation exacerbated the problem. And so we, I couldn't really tell you when he was at work and when he was not at work, when he was not home. He did have a way of sort of disappearing. But it is interesting that sort of the culture of being locked in the blockhouse, being locked where you would be doing the guidance kind of work for the duration of the countdown until it went off or until it was scrubbed. And that, of course, was security kinds of reasons. We were very afraid of the Russians. Buckmaster remembers watching many of the first rocket launches from Florida's space coast as a child. Absolutely. And in those days, it was still quite thrilling for everyone, people who worked out there and tourists, and especially in Cocoa Beach, you know, all the bars gave free drinks if you were there when a launch went off, and um, much uh, different view than in Satellite Beach um, in terms of what you could actually see of the launch. But I remember them zipping through the sky and people running out of storefronts, missile, missile, you know, it was, it was quite thrilling in those days. And of course, they closed the schools in Brevard County for the day that Alan Shepard was launched and the day that John Glenn was launched. We'd all be down on the beach watching the launch and we drove down to Cocoa Beach and that was where we were. It was quite the day, quite the day. And of course, you never knew exactly when they were going if there'd be a hold on, which sometimes could be days, right? But other times, you know, you just didn't know. It's projected to go at 7.35, and it's the same way now, right? It could be 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Linda Buckmaster tells a unique story in Space Heart, a memoir in stages. In 1962, technology that had been developed for the space program saved her life. I did have open heart surgery in 62, I was 11. It was uh, rather pioneering, I've come to realize now. Uh, it was for an atrial septal defect, which is the hole between the auricles that I was born with. That is what they thought was the only problem. So I've come to learn more recently um, it was really a confluence of time that I was able to have this. It was needed to be done before I went through puberty. It was also waiting for the technology to catch up with what was needed. And the heart-lung machine, um, which was about a decade old and had been used on very few children, um, that, was, that was a big part of it. And also what's now called induced hypothermia. The story was my brain was frozen for 25 minutes. So it was this interesting confluence of the technology and the need um, that needed to be done then. Um, the uh, surgery was done at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, which actually was where I was born. And the surgeon, Dr. Litwack, um, was quite well known. He had quite an extensive career in Florida. And after my surgery, a couple months later, he went to Beth Israel, um, where he um, retired from. 
but the surgery was scheduled for four hours to repair the um, tear. And as I've read from another surgeon, that kind of repair, a skilled seamstress could do that in about 10 minutes itself once they actually get in there. Open heart surgery in and of itself was quite new then. It had all been closed heart. So it was scheduled for four hours. I think it's the kind of thing that probably takes about 45 minutes now. When they got in there, they realized that uh, there were three veins on the wrong side of the heart, uh, which is not an uncommon um, thing. Again, um, something you're born with, it's very physical. And he made the decision that rather than stitch me up and go through the recovery and then do another surgery to keep going, and open up the other side of the heart. And what he did was he picked up a piece of Teflon tubing um, that he uh, ran into the three veins. He sliced the veins, put the tubing through there, ran it through the hole between the auricles, which simultaneously plugged the hole and drained the blood into the correct side. I don't know if it's ever been done since, or if there was a reason for it to ever be done since. And I also don't know, uh, because back in those days, you didn't ask doctors a lot of questions. My parents didn't, you know, you just took it for granted. I also don't know how I came to make the decision to use the Teflon. We knew what Teflon was. It was in my mother's frying pans. You know, it was in the latest thing, so you know, the egg wouldn't stick to the frying pan. Um, we knew some other uses for it, but what it was doing in the OR that day, I don't know, and how he decided to use that, I don't know. Now, Teflon was used in multiple uses in the space industry, fireproofing the astronauts' suits. So, I get to say that, and I'll tell you, whatever, 60-something years later, it's still there. It wasn't until much later that Buckmaster began making connections between her groundbreaking heart surgery, the space program, and the maverick experimental culture of the 1950s and 60s. I'm going to say maybe about 20 years ago, I started thinking about the fact that my surgery was quite pioneering. And um, I do have an essay in the book called Cowboys um, because I kind of was starting to think it was cowboy surgery in terms of, you know, here we are out on the range and we're doing whatever it takes. And of course, cowboys were ubiquitous in the 50s and 60s. Um, every night of the week, there were cowboys on TV. The astronauts were space cowboys, you know, they lived that Wild West lifestyle. So I think that his move, which I call a maverick move, was sort of consistent with the time. Um, of course, he was in Miami, but the consistent with the era and that. So I started thinking, I think I might have been a little bit of an experiment here. And then I started researching the early days of um, open heart surgery, um, and the books have wonderful titles like The Right Stuff just in case you needed reinforcement, or the maverick of open heart surgery. I, I, you know, it was, it was a little too much to not go, okay, I'm, I'm, yeah. It was definitely of that era. And that's where I started bringing it all together. And what essentially the book is about, bringing that all together, that we had this cutting edge technology, we also had this wild natural world. I mean, it was not uncommon to see bobcats on A1A. You know, not certainly not in 
Cocoa Beach. But, um, you know, going out to the Cape, it was a long, empty road, or going south of Satellite Beach. And it was, it was that kind of a place. So there's this juxtaposition of that and this cut, cutting edge technology. And people were sort of oblivious to some of the ironies of it, I think, at that point. As Linda Buckmaster explains in her book, Space Heart, A Memoir in Stages, in the summer of 1969, when Neil Armstrong became the first man to set foot on the moon, she had left the Space Coast on a journey of self-discovery that included attending Woodstock. I had left um, Florida, you know, mo really moved out um, at the beginning of that summer, and I was waitressing on Fisher's Island, which is in the Long Island Sound. It's one of those I privately owned islands with a big country club, and um, it's the kind of place where the New York Times comes over on the ferry in the morning, and I was down there picking it up, um, and, uh, and, and it was splashed, it was huge, across the front page there. And I must say that even you know, being a callous 19-year-old, I felt a little thrill, and I felt a little, hey, I know about that. And I was, I was anxious when, when people asked, said, uh, made a comment about it, and then I could say, well, you know, I know all about this kind of thing. That's my memory of that day. In the 1970s, Buckmaster settled in rural Maine, but she returned to Florida to do research for her memoir and to visit her late brother. Although development has overtaken much of the Space Coast, Buckmasters still find solace on Brevard County beaches. It's quite the antithesis to Belfast, Maine, I'll tell you that, Midcoast, Maine. And um, uh, I, I've, I've come for family. I don't have family now. Um, but it's not exactly my kind of place these days. I will say something. The beaches are still fabulous. There's nothing like them. And I will say that um, Brevard County and the state of Florida has been very, very smart in making public access early on, right? This started in the 60s, which we thought was kind of weird because you could just pull over and hack your way through the palmettos and go to any beach you wanted. But they started, you know, with Spessard Holland Park and um, Merritt Island um, National Wildlife Refuge was sometime I think in the early 60s, was partially a, a protection for the Cape itself. I mean, we thought that was the silliest thing we ever heard. Why would you, why would you want to protect, you know, a bunch of jungle or something like, something like that? But I think that the, the state and Brevard County has been very smart and the beaches are still quite wonderful. There's nothing like them in the world and I took my walk this morning. Linda Buckmaster is author of the book Space Heart, a memoir in stages published by Borough Press. She grew up in Brevard County in the 1950s and 60s, and technology developed for the space program saved her life during open heart surgery at age 11.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, when the Spanish first arrived in La Florida in the 16th century, they brought with them Catholicism. Yeah, that's right, Ben. As early as you said, the 16th century, the Spanish brought priests with them and and also brought the Catholic faith. This was a part of 16th century life, at least for the Spanish that were traveling to Florida and who eventually established the city of St. Augustine and the territory of Florida. So into the 16th and 17th and even into the 18th century, the Spanish mission system, which was a string essentially of missions or small parishes into the indigenous territory of Florida, stretched all the way from St. Augustine westward towards the Appalachian Territory, present-day Tallahassee, and again lasted into the 18th century, but had essentially collapsed shortly after that period. So really, Catholicism was relegated to the city of St. Augustine and Pensacola, and that's really where the only churches were in Florida into the end of the 18th century. And by 1763, the British took over, and essentially every Catholic was kicked out. They moved to Cuba or to other Spanish territories, and the uh, Protestant religion sort of took its place in St. Augustine and Pensacola. Now, there would have been absolutely no Catholics, and the faith itself probably would have died out in Florida had it not been for the small group of Menorcans who were part of the Andrew Turnbull plantation in New Smyrna on Florida's east coast that made their way to St. Augustine and established a small parish there during the British period that lasted into the second Spanish period. But by 1821, the U.S. had acquired Florida, and there were very few Catholics in the territory at that time period, so it was a very, very small population, and the faith itself was was fairly small throughout the Florida Territory. Now, just prior to the Civil War, the situation improved for Catholics in Florida, right? That's right, Ben, and that success can be traced to one individual, a gentleman by the name of Augustine Varro, Bishop Augustine Varro. Now, he came to Florida in 1858. He was originally from France, born in France in 1805 in Le Pew, France, came to the United States, to Baltimore in 1830, and then eventually was named bishop and was sent down to Florida to essentially turn things around, if you will. And he was attached to the Diocese of Savannah, which was the closest diocese at that time. Florida did not have its own diocese. So within the the hierarchy, system of the Catholic faith. You know, there are levels of leadership and of parishes and churches and things like that. In Florida, there just weren't that many Catholics here. And remember at that time period, too, in the mid-19th century, Catholicism is linked to immigration. So it isn't the most popular religion. It's not a native religion. It does not originate in the United States of America. So this is essentially something brought over by Europeans, which was not a terribly popular thing at the time period. So Varro, who was a European himself, of course, comes to Florida and begins this 
evangelical work, if you will, throughout the territory. He rebuilds the church in St. Augustine, works to build churches in Tallahassee, uh, as far south as Key West, Jacksonville, some of the other larger population centers. But his leadership, or his, his period as leader from about 1858 up through the 1870s, is really marked by his decisions made during the American Civil War, which was, of course, a turning point for American society in general. But for the, the Catholic Church, it was a very difficult position because the official position, at least on the issue of slavery for most American Catholic bishops and clergymen, was one of sort of walking the middle of the line, not necessarily denouncing the practice. But Varro went so far as to denounce abolitionism and uh, preach that slavery was part of the uh, biblical lessons and that it was um, something that should be allowed. But he also pushed for the rights of slaves and later of freedmen after the end of the Civil War. So it was kind of a complicated teaching, you know, it's, and it seemed to be fairly contradictory, at least by modern standards. But regardless of all of that, he did help to boost the number of Catholics who were practicing within the now state of Florida up through the period of his leadership when he ultimately died in 1876 in St. Augustine. And you have an interesting document here. It's a, a copy of the sermon given at Bishop Vero's funeral in 1876. Yeah, what we're looking at now is a sermon delivered by Henri-Pierre Claveau, and he was a uh, one of the priests who had worked under Vero for, for several decades. It's hard to imagine now, but it was difficult for anyone to attract a priest to come to Florida. Florida was the end of the world. It was a wild frontier. There was yellow fever epidemics and, of course, the heat. It was such a rural place. You know, we had very little infrastructure. Uh, Varro had to travel to France to pull these young priests from the seminary, bring them over to Florida, nuns as well. And he built up this kind of army of priests and, and nuns and, and people to kind of go out into the rural communities of Florida and help try and convert people or at least educate people about the Catholic faith within the American South, specifically within Florida. So Claveau was one of those individuals, and he gave this sermon at the Mass that commemorated his life in 1876. And this was at the cathedral that Varel helped to really rebuild when he first arrived in 1858. And this kind of goes over his life, talks a lot about those points, sort of glosses over the Civil War period. But again, it's, it's very complicated because even after the war, the Catholic nuns in St. Augustine were some of the few people that were educating African-American children after the war, the, the sons and daughters of emancipated populations in Florida. So they sort of changed their tune a little bit after the abolition of slavery, after the end of the war. And even during the war, Vero and, and many of his priests traveled to Andersonville Prison up in Georgia. They were all throughout the South talking to uh, both Union and Confederate soldiers and bestowing upon them the, the Catholic rights to either side throughout that time period. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the sermon we've been discussing and some images related to Bishop Vero, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Students from the University of Central Florida working in the Veterans Legacy Program have traveled to France to work in American cemeteries. They've also done work at veteran cemeteries right here in Florida. 
Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this report. The History Department at the University of Central Florida recently partnered with the Department of Veterans Affairs to bring veteran stories to life through the Veterans Legacy Program. Dr. Scott French is the Director of Public History at the University of Central Florida. He told me more about the Veterans Legacy Program. The Veterans Legacy Program is an initiative of the National Cemetery Administration to connect communities to the cemeteries, the national cemeteries that were created for veterans. And they've asked us here at UCF in the History Department to help them and to bring this project into classrooms, into K-12 classrooms, into our own classrooms here at UCF. And we've been exploring how to use new technology and how to improve our storytelling techniques. UCF's Veterans Legacy Program team first worked at Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell, Florida, one of 135 national cemeteries overseen by the National Cemetery Administration. They took students on a field trip to Florida National Cemetery, created an interactive website that features veteran biographies written by UCF students, and they created K-12 classroom materials about the veterans there. Now they're uncovering the stories of veterans in St. Augustine National Cemetery. Dr. Scott French. St. Augustine is a really cool historical site. It has this amazing long history that predates the creation of the National Cemetery system. It became a cemetery in the early 19th century, and some of the earliest burials there date to the Seminole War. Our work there has involved researching the people who are buried there and uh, telling their stories, the hidden histories that are buried in the cemetery. Students at the University of Central Florida wrote biographies about veterans in St. Augustine National Cemetery. Gramon McPherson, a graduate student in the history program at UCF, wrote several of the veteran biographies for the Veterans Legacy Program. He told me about the importance of remembering the sacrifices of African-American veterans. There are about 55 black veterans that we focus on. The whole concept was about African-American veterans, the forgotten veterans. African-Americans, uh, their service obviously oftentimes was dismissed. African-Americans had a lot to prove even after the war. A lot of their service was still not really regarded by a broad society. And so this is our way in a sense of trying to honor their memories. My father, my grandfather, I served in the military. I have uncles who are currently serving in the military. So it's an honor for me to be able to honor that legacy, both as an African-American and as a son of a veteran. So uh, I'm just happy that I was able to be part of this again. Dr. Scott French. One of our partners on this project, the Center for Humanities and Digital Research, and Amy Giroux, who is a computer specialist, has been looking at records of African-American burials in St. Augustine National Cemetery, and what she was able to find were a considerable and substantial presence of African-Americans. And that's important to us because we want to highlight the participation of African-Americans in U.S. wars and conflicts, their, their uh, important contributions, and bring them into the stories that we tell. The work of the Veterans Legacy Program shows that every veteran has a story. And every stone in St. Augustine National Cemetery represents a life and a sacrifice that should be remembered. To read the biographies of veterans from Florida National Cemetery and St. Augustine National Cemetery, visit www.vlp.cah.ucf.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. 
You can also listen to this program as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. If you're at the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs this weekend, be sure to stop by the Florida Historical Society tent and say hello. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.